American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Coming out of World War II, America wanted a return to stability. And all of the ways in which government and workers and capital interacted during World War II contributed to the formation of that newly stable system. The supply of federal contracts that were cost plus so that corporations could charge whatever their costs were plus a little bit of profit made sure that corporations knew what they were getting. The labor security during World War II so that unions were recognized, whether AFL or CIO, and part of that industrial production, given good wages in return for not striking. This whole system of stability, of making sure that there's enough capital invested in firms, enough R&D to promote growth, and most importantly, this partnership of the government and corporations and labor. It was called corporate liberalism because it was bringing about a new industrial stability. And yet, even at the end of World War II, that stability was threatened. During the war, union leaders had kept a lid on any kinds of strikes in the name of patriotism. But at the end of that war, there was immediately, on VJ Day, a strike wave that was unprecedented in American history. Over the next 12 days after the victory over Japan, more Americans went on strike, and there were more strikes than ever before in American history. The incredible prosperity of World War II was faced by an equal fear of retrenchment after the war's end. Almost immediately, contracts began to be cut. Thousands were laid off, hours were cut back, and workers feared that the gains during the war would quickly evaporate. These strikes mattered because more Americans than ever before worked for large corporations. Whereas before the war, only about 10 or 13 percent of Americans worked for firms with more than 10,000 workers. After the war, over a third of all Americans did. Americans worked at these big firms and they were unionized at these big firms. At the same time, small business had collapsed. Millions of small businesses had gone under during the war and so this whole economy was predicated more on big business and big labor. Labor agreements mattered more than ever before. All these strikes and pay increases have been credited with returning Republicans to the control of Congress in the 1946 elections. Though we now think of Truman as a very successful president, at the end of his term, he had only a 30% approval rating. After all, communism was on the march around the world. We had come out of World War II seemingly triumphant, but then the Russians had taken over Eastern Europe. Free elections never happened. And it seemed everywhere that Americans' superpower status was fragile and contested. The new Republican-controlled Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which was a real turning point in American labor law. It is almost the balance to the Wagner Act of the 1930s. It did a lot of things. It, first of all, it banned secondary strikes and boycotts so that Unionists could not go on strike if somebody else was going on strike. Longshoremen couldn't go on strike if factory workers were going on strike, which really limited the power of American unions to organize and damage the economy, especially after the end of the sit-down strike. 
Secondly, it banned the closed shop so that there are three ways in which a union can organize a workplace. There's a closed shop where you can only hire union workers. There's a union shop where you can hire anybody, but then they have to join the union. And then there's an open shop where you don't have to join the union at all. It banned the closed shop. And so the power of unions to organize workforces was limited. And more importantly than that, it said that the union shop, the legality of the union shop, was to be decided on a state-by-state -state case. It is called now a right-to-work law in America. And it quickly, in the aftermath, the right-to-work states increased to 21, especially in the South. And so in the northern part of America, people are able to organize into unions. In the southern part, they are not. The West is a bit more mixed. And so by the 1950s, the last right-to-work uh, drives are held off by Colorado and California. But this right-to-work legacy puts unions in a precarious place in organizing workers in the places that, in fact, the Americans' new industry is spreading to, that is, the Sunbelt South. The final part of Taft-Hartley is that the membership of the unions had to sign an anti-communist affidavit. Now, this seems kind of silly to us, living in a post-communist world. By the time, fears of communism were omnipresent. And signing or not signing meant whether or not your union could use the powers of the NLRB to enforce contracts and union recognition. So it was not as easy as just signing whatever somebody put in front of you, because if you were found to actually be a communist, you'd be found uh, to have perjury, and you would be sent to jail. And so this part is very important, especially for the CIO unions, which do have a substantial ideologically driven uh, communist membership. John L. Lewis himself was not a communist, but he felt like these people were part of his unions and they were part of organizing the American workforce. But after Taft-Hartley, even they were purged. And so after, in the aftermath of Taft-Hartley, you see a much less radical, much more practical union movement in America limited in its power, limited in its scope. In return for these concessions, Taft-Hartley brought American unions, whether AFL or CIO, ever more firmly under this system of corporate liberalism. They were now part of the system. And in return, they got the benefits. They got good wages, they got vacations, they got seniority, they got cost of living adjustments, they got sick pay, and they even got pension plans. They got the stability of a world built on growth and shared prosperity. They had given up a lot in terms of workplace control and political ideology, but in return, they got the good life, the good life that John L. Lewis had been looking for in the 1930s. By 1950, the GM-UAW contract was now called the Treaty of Detroit. Every five years, it would be reaffirmed. And this contract that set the stage not just for auto workers, but for all workers in America, was ultimately that vision of the late 19th century achieved. Industrial peace, widespread prosperity, and workers even having a part of the gains of American capitalism. But that peace was not to last. For more information, go to edX.org and look for 
American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.